Hello and welcome everyone to the first episode that we're recording in 2022. Hope everyone has had a fantastic first two weeks. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, our, our two weeks were a little bit hectic because of uh, some of our very drastic and uh, and last minute change in travel plans coming to India from the UK. So we couldn't release anything in the past two weeks. But in this episode, <laughs> we talk about taxes, specifically the book that Keegan just read called Daylight Robbery by yeah. Dominic Frisbee. Yeah. He and just, ta taxes is a much more interesting subject than you might think. Yeah. Yeah. This is not this is not going to be hopefully for you something that you have to dreadfully listened to. We cover the things that Dominic Crispy noted in the book, as well as what Keegan took out of it and what he could recount from the stories that he remembered. So hopefully it'll be very interesting. It was very interesting for me to interview Keegan because I haven't read the book yet, but <laughs> I could hear Keegan from where we were sitting, sighing or just making like sounds because he was mind blown from what he was reading. So it was very exciting to hear his thoughts on the book. Do you have any parting thoughts? Oh, wait, I did say this at the end of the episode, but uh, one of the episodes that we're going to record in this month slash next month and release is on Keegan and I being a couple, a married couple and having a business together and also having all of our money in Bitcoin. So this was a request by TJ. TJ, we're finally going to get to this and, and get you this episode. But this is a question that we want to post to all of you is, do you have questions on how we handle our money or how we reach these decisions or you know what the kind of relationship that we share regarding money um if, if you do send your questions to ready at gofullcrypto.com or you can also send them to us on twitter instagram uh those those are the two that we check regularly so feel free to send them that's going to be great for us because we want to know what you want to know about it and that'll help us sort of direct con our conversation on how we reached where we are uh, with respect to our money being in Bitcoin and how we just communicate with each other about things. <laughs> Perfect. All right, without further ado, let's talk about taxes. The thoughts and opinions expressed by Keegan Francis, Mogokshi Palwi, and the guests on the Go Full Crypto podcast are solely their own and are not intended as financial advice. The content discussed is for informational purposes only. We're live in India. We are. Well, I mean, this is going to be pre-recorded and then released later. So it's not, it's not necessarily live. Yes, but we're still in India. <laughs> we're filming this episode here. This is true. UK was kind of a, a blurb um, for, for those of you that a reached... A blurb. Not a blurb. <laughs> not a blurb. Oh, gosh. Yeah. Okay. Well, uh, for those of you that reached out to us, we're so sorry that we couldn't... Uh, meet you because we had some very drastic change in travel plans because of our because of a requirement for visa to India. Yeah, traveling during COVID is very difficult. Well, we knew and that. Expensive. We knew that. A friend of ours who listens to this podcast was the one that told us. Shout out to you, Justin. You know who you are. Uh, that um, when you you do things that you really want to do, when you can change your sentence to even if. Um, this is going on, I want to be able to do this versus like, this is happening, which is why I can't do it. It's like, even if COVID is a thing, we're going to go travel and visit our family. That's kind of what we did. I was really happy that Justin said that. And we didn't catch COVID despite us being in many different crowded places with thousands of individuals multiple times. 
Um, like the UK, for example, we were there when Omicron was blowing up um, and we didn't catch it. So that's kind of cool. Yeah. This is not a podcast yeah, about COVID, Yeah, I really, though. I actually really don't want to talk about COVID. So yeah. let's get to talking about the book that you just finished. Oh, uh, yeah. I finished a book uh, by Dominic Frisbee called, what was it called? Oh, Daylight Robbery. Yeah, that's right. Um, I think that we've actually discussed a little bit about Daylight Robbery on the podcast before. Um, but there were a ton of really interesting insights in the book and you're going to have to like prompt me for questions because I can't like necessarily just pull these things out of my head, um, at a moment's notice. Uh, but if you set me off, I can, I can definitely shed some light on what the book was about and, and the, uh, the insights that I pulled and how, how it's... Sure, sure. What prompted you to read Daylight Robbery by Dominic Frisbee? Oh, well, he was on the, um... The Robert Breedlove podcast. The Which is, you've been listening to as well. Yes, incessantly. I've been <laughs> just binging all of... Uh, like, he's he is a great podcaster because he actually interviews people for, like, 14 hours straight. And then... Um, not straight, um, <laughs> like <laughs> uh-huh. necessarily in one session, but, um, he then chunks up that 14 hours into two hour episodes, um, and like th- themes the each two hour segment and Dominic Frisbee was on, he was one of the people, uh, that, uh, Breedlove interviewed there and he was talking about his book and the history of taxes. Uh, his whole idea is that, uh, uh, like taxes, shaped a lot more of our past and will have a massive role to play in the future much more than we um, might instinctively think on the surface Uh, like we kind of think tax is just one of those certain things that's transitory and like oh you got to pay it every year i don't think that i ever thought that taxes were transitory I, I definitely did for for like like transitory meaning that there would be a day where we wouldn't have to pay taxes no uh, not transitory in that sense. Transitory in the sense that like they're just inevitable and they're they're just there and there's nothing that we can do to get rid of them. Um, Wait, sp- what? <laughs> yeah. What? What? Define transitory. Uh, well, I think the literal definition of <laughs> transitory is closer to what you said is like temporary. Uh-huh. But like, so we're not using what transitory actually means. I, I, I'm not meaning like to. I'm not using transitory in the sense that like we completely get rid of taxes at some point. I'm I'm saying like uh, like our taxes kind of seem to be on a trajectory where they're like only increasing. Um, whereas like I'd like to see us reduce the size of our tax code. Um over time in certain intelligent ways, like more so adapt to present day rather than just kind of continually increase and makes make the tax code more complex. Like Dominic Frisbee gave some examples of massive tax codes in the world. Uh, the, um, the British tax code is something like 10 million, yeah, 21,000 pages long, 10 million words. And if you compare that to Hong Kong's tax code, Hong Kong's tax code is 200 pages long. Um, and so it's one and a half percent the size of the UK's tax code. Uh, and he also goes into talking about like, what does it cost to enforce a tax code of that size, right? It actually builds a, a class of accountants and tax professionals that need to study this, uh, these 10 million words, um, not only just read them once, but like read them multiple times and then understand them and then make sense of how to have businesses and individuals comply with the tax code. And be able to recite them as well. Yeah, exactly. So then you can actually put a cost, like a dollar cost. How much does it cost 
the government and how much does it cost the individual to pay a dollar worth of tax. And as soon as you get, like, as soon as it costs, uh, I guess, more than 50 cents to collect a dollar, it becomes not worth it to collect the tax in the first place. I have a question, though. You said that how much does it cost the government and how much does it cost the people, except how does the government make money without collecting taxes? Because isn't that the primary source of the government's expenditure? I would say that the government has two primary sources. Well, well, I guess they wouldn't be primary sources then. Uh, they have two two ways to make money. Uh, literally make it to like print it out of thin air, which they now can do because we've been off the, the gold standard since 71. And then the second way is, yes, collect taxes from the people. Essentially har harvesting productive activity. Go ahead. Okay, sure. I mean, I, I guess th those are two ways for the government to quote-unquote make money, but... Uh, uh, what was that quote? You, that you, nothing is for free. So the government doesn't print money for free. There has to be some sor sort of work that is put in somewhere else to balance that equation because you, you can produce something of value out of thin air. Right. So, yeah, there's no free lunch. That's the quote that you're looking for, maybe. No, no, I'm looking for another one. Um, but the point being that nothing is for free. Someone has to pay for it somewhere down the line and we just don't realize it. Well, yeah, I, I do actually think the government can print the money for, for free, which is why it's such a problem that they can do that. Be, because you can't, like, it, it kind of violates a physical law. And like Breedlove would say something like, uh, money is energy or money is time. Um, and energy cannot be created nor destroyed. Um, and so to print money out of thin air is to kind of violate the first law of thermodynamics. It's like if money is stored energy, if that truly is what money is, and I, I believe that then to print it out of thin air is to say that I'm creating a representation of energy out of thin air, um, i.e. I'm creating energy, <laughs> which is why I have such a big issue with, with money printing. Uh, I, but I still don't, I mean, I guess the, the equation is a little bit longer than that because I actually don't think that creating value out of thin air is, is possible because someone has to pay that price right. either the long term via inflation or be due to inflation mm -hmm. um or something else right okay but coming back to the the whole thing about tra taxes being transitory you were saying that dominic frisbee said that taxes are going to play a larger role in just humankind in the future yeah, absolutely. Or for humankind in the future, they they can't help but but do that. Uh, like taxes actually really do shape uh, the fabric of society or the shape of society. Um, like taxes are pretty useful too, right? We can create a tax to disincentivize or incentivize particular behaviors that the government wants the society to to play. Like just five minutes before we started this episode, I was reading that Quebec, a province in Canada, is uh, going to have. Uh, charge a tax on unvaxxed people. So if you decide not to get uh, a vaccination, then you have to pay a health tax. Um, and they don't know what the amount will be yet, but it's funny, they called it an incentive, which is the opposite of what it is. It's a disincentive, a disincentive not to get, um, like you don't get money for getting vaccinated. Um, you have to pay money to not get vaccinated. So it's a disincentive, which is fine. Like, Taxes uh, like work both ways, right? You can have disincentive taxes and tax and incentive taxes uh, or tax breaks, rather. Like if you start a business in Nova Scotia, they'll give you some money to do that. If you um, and then like carbon credits are an example of disincentive tax. We want companies and people to uh, lessen their carbon footprint. Let's put a tax on all of your carbon output in theory. 
um, that decreases the amount of uh, of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere by actually putting a price on it. What is the definition of a tax? That's such a good question, and I don't have an immediate answer for you. Well, uh, because you, you said in that law about Quebec, uh, I just remembered we have to wear a mask inside a car if we don't in India. In India, <laughs> if we don't, the the police or the authorities can stop us and charge us a fine just on the spot. Right. Hey, you're not wearing a mask inside your car with your windows rolled up in your bubble, whatever. You still have to pay money because you're not, and right. that is not you know, outright attacks, but the money does go to the government at yeah. the end of the day, and it is a fine. So I think that a fine is also a way of charging a tax, which is why I was wondering, what is a tax? Well, yeah, and what's the difference between a fine and a tax? So I would much rather call that thing that they're doing in Quebec a fine, because like I would say that a fine is when you don't comply with, with the law, right? Like you get a, a financial penalty for not complying with the orders of the authority. So it's an incentive... For whom, though? For the for the government to collect more so, money from I, people I think the way for that, making a different choice? I think the way that they're using incentive is, uh, here's, a, here's an incentive to not get fined. Go get your vaccine. That's the incentive, <laughs> which is kind of weird. Well, I mean, I mean, that was, <laughs> that does work when you don't, you don't want people to litter. And if you what was that? Is I think it's in the states a, I remember, but th- yeah, I know it, it's it's a funny manipulation of language. It. It's marketing. It is. It is marketing, which governments are very good at. Uh, when well, a government does that... marketing, it's called marketing. But when a different <laughs> government does, or a different branch of government that the established government does uh, does marketing, it's called propaganda. That's, what? What? Yeah, propaganda. Like. If if the kind of marketing that your government's doing is something you don't like, it's it's called propaganda. Oh, so it depends on you whether or not you want to look at it as exactly. or interpret it as someone something being marketed to you or uh, propaganda being I don't know blown up on your face so that you can follow it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Oh well. Um, so in in the scenario that we're in right now, with respect to taxes, kind of on this ever increasing trajectory. Um, w- there's kind of a couple different outcomes. I have to ask yeah, you, go ahead. though, yeah. you say ever-increasing trajectory and taxes increasing, et cetera, et cetera. Are you talking about all of the countries all over the, the planet or specifically Canada and some other countries following I the am, same sort of yeah um, trend? Generally speaking, I'm, I'm talking about all, all countries in the world right now. Like we're uh, Really? <laughs> yeah, just ge- generally speaking. Not all of them, not 100% of them, uh, but like 95 to 99% of them, uh, like with some exceptions being like North Korea because they have 100% tax on everyone, basically, right? Um, there was a really useful way to think about uh, income tax or taxes in general. Um, if if you're being 100% taxed, then you're a slave. If you are being 0% taxed, then you live in an anarchy and you know you owe nothing to an authority figure that does not exist. So that's that's kind of the spectrum. And then like, where do countries fall on that? Um, and it's kind of like a black and white way of looking at it, right? Um, but it, it's also kind of useful because you, essentially what a tax is, is it's a claim on your productive output. It's a claim on, on your labor, right? Your, like your labor and knowledge and skill set is how you contribute value to the economy or create value for an economy. <laughs> I always looked at tax as um, paying rent to the government for being able to produce that value in 
the in the in on the grounds of the government or the grounds of that particular land piece of land yeah that's that's a good way to put it actually because that is kind of what you're you're doing by paying tax to the government is by it, like you're renting your citizenship effectively yeah, and rent's increasing or you're renting your uh your freedom in a way um like or you're renting the privileges that the government affords you or uh, i would not I, I would not agree with that definition simply because i think that the word freedom comes with an asterisk that has a whole list of things that are not included in the word freedom yeah um, which is kind of like so oxymoronic I, to freedom exactly yeah. uh, and i wouldn't really say that but even de democracy for that matter it, it's just uh, the definition of the word is so different from the practice of that definition that yeah. I don't really, you know, when you said that things are black and white or things can be made out to be black and white, I, I don't think things can ever be black and white. But we're trying to define them in whatever way possible so that there can be some sort of structure right. according to which we can live our lives within an environment such as a government. And I'm not sure how I how I feel about the way that we're doing things, but it, like something is has to be in place like and like you said there's a range zero percent of any control is anarchy and then a hundred percent is what would you term that to be? slavery oh really yeah, yeah. If, okay if, if the government has a hundred percent claim on your productive output they, they own you they own you and everything you produce which is so you're a slave right at that point um i'm not sure i actually would like to look up more definitions of slavery instead of just saying that if you're taxed 100% you're a slave simply because there might be different areas of uh, of procuring one's productivity in a in a not very like monetary fashion right yeah uh, so i'm not speaking necessarily about um them taking money from you like tax in the form of money um, That's what I thought you were talking about. No, not not explicitly as money. And this is actually kind of important to understanding tax in general. Like tax really just refers to a, a claim on your productive output, right? If if you're in a factory making shoes all day and the shoes are going and like maybe they're boots for the army, um, those boots are never sold for money, right? So how do you tax something that never becomes money or never is sold for money? Um, well, like the fundamental unit of productive capacity or productive output is is human labor. Everything comes down to either human labor or the materials from the earth, right? Um, and then beyond that, uh, like that's how <laughs> that's where taxes come from, right? Uh, like either you're taxing the material of the earth or you're taxing human labor. And then money is uh, essentially the like the unit that we use to measure all labor and materials. It's 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 more convenient. Again, this goes back to like how much does it cost for the government to collect a unit of tax or a dollar? Um, it's more convenient for them to tax. It's cheaper for them to collect money than it is for them to directly tax labor. What are you thinking? Say that again. It's cheaper for a government to tax to collect money to collect their tax in the form of money than it is for them to collect their tax in the form of, of labor itself. Um, I think that there is many formats or not many, many layers to define how um, someone in charge of authority collects something in return for providing um, essentially a place for you to live or a citizenship, so to speak. 
But I, I guess to move on with learning more about from more about what you read in the book, let's let's go on. And then if I can think of any more layers to how one taxes someone someone else, yeah. I, I can I can voice that. Oh yeah, and we'll we'll definitely find more tangents to go on here that that kind of round off our understanding as we go. Yeah. So you know, coming back, you wanted to read Daylight Robbery is the name of the book by Dominic Frisbee because you listened to what, a 14 hour lecture series or <laughs> podcast episode series on Breedlove's, Breedlove interviewing Frisbee? Yeah, I think it was between eight and 12 hours. Oh. Uh, yeah. Okay. Yeah. And then you read the book. Why don't you tell me why it was called Daylight Robbery? I really love that story. Yeah. So this is, this is a, uh... And an illustration that the name of the book is Daylight Robbery. It's an illustration of how uh, good intentions uh, or go somewhat good ideas about how to tax the people have divergent outcomes from the intention. Um, so there used to be a hearth tax and a hearth is just a fireplace. Um, now, where? Uh, where? In England, in the U United Kingdom. So the tax collectors wouldn't actually need to physically come inside of your dwelling, of your home and count the number of hearths that your home has. So if you've got two hearths, you pay twice as much tax as someone with one hearth, or maybe there was a scaling of some sort. The point is that people started to feel like their privacy was being invaded by these tax collectors because they actually had to physically come in the home. And at that point, they actually get to see a bigger, broader picture of your standard of living and your wealth and whatnot. Basically, people felt like their privacy was being invaded, I would argue, rightfully so. I don't want some stranger coming in and counting my hearths and, and saying that I owe them some money. So the government was like, okay, what can we do? What kind of tax can we replace this with? Because the government never really loves to like just straight up get rid of a tax. They always need to replace it with something else. Um, so they were like, okay, let's have a window tax. And the window tax uh, was uh, much better for privacy because the tax collector could then just walk around the perimeter or the outside of the home and count the windows. So then... And this was like somewhat seen at the time as more of like a fair tax because... Uh, a what tax? A fair, like F-A-I-R. It was more fair than the hard oh, tax. Oh, fair. Okay, cool. Yeah, because um, like maybe a rich home um, only needed to have one or two... Um, Hearths, even though it might have been like quite a bit bigger, five or six times bigger than a small home that had one hearth, right? But the window tax, if you had a big home, you probably had like 50 windows. But if you had a small home, you had one or two or three. Anyway, so what happened was these tax collectors, uh, like, yep, yeah, they went around, they preserved people's privacy. That was no longer an issue. Uh, but what people started to do was try, try to avoid tax. Anytime there's a tax, people come, the higher the tax, the uh, the more effort people put into trying to avoid the tax, and we'll actually let's I want to sideline that issue because that's a really fascinating conversation. Um, so the more the higher the tax and the more unfair the tax, the more that people try to avoid the tax. Um, so people started boarding up their Did windows. Did you say the more unfair the tax? The more unfair the tax. But well, in this case, it depends on the people, right? The Fairness kind, is like, subjectivity. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Because you just said that the window tax became more fair than the hearth tax because richer houses or households would have more windows even if they had fewer hearths. Yes. So it was fair for the uh, poorer people, but unfair for the richer people. Or that, so they thought. So they thought, right. Exactly. It depends on where, like fairness depends, it's, it's subjective, right? It depends on your social status. It depends on where you are in the financial hierarchy as well. Um, 
So yeah, anyway, what, what people started to do to do was to board up their windows. And while we, we went, when we were in England, we went and saw Stonehenge and we were driving through a town and I forget the name of the town. Do you Salisbury. Remember? Salisbury. Yeah. And these are really old buildings, like three or 400 years old. And we would see windows bricked up with stone or boarded up and never reopened. And that's from this era where people had to pay tax on the number of windows they had. So in order to avoid the tax, they boarded up the windows. They have less windows, they pay less tax. So as a result, people started to get less vitamin D, less airflow through the home. Less sunlight. Less sunlight, right. Thank you. And then that decreased the health of these people. Um, and that led to a, a phrase, I forget which politician said this in... Um, in the British House of Commons, I believe it's called, but um, they said it's daylight robbery, and that eventually led to the the uh, the down the downfall, the removal of that tax, um, because the the government was um, not literally robbing people of their daylight, um, right? That's, but it was causing other problems. Exactly. Yeah, it just had a consequence that they didn't they didn't foresee. Because of course foresee. you wouldn't you can't really imagine what. People are going to do to react to an action that they take. And because of lack of vitamin D and because of lack of airflow, people started getting sick, sick and falling, falling ill more often, more of them too. And that's right. The, the hospitals or whatever was in place at that time couldn't take that load. I, I don't know if it ever got to be that that extreme. Like I don't I don't even know if there's there's data on that necessarily. Um I think Dominic Frisbee lays lays out the the evidence behind okay. the the increased burden on whatever healthcare system was in place, but you also have to keep in mind this was hundreds of years ago and um like the data is, is not exactly all that reliable. Or accurate? Or or accurate. Um the the, the point <laughs> reliability of, this, of data is very yeah, uh, <laughs> like, yeah in any era because yeah. it depends solely on the people recording it and yes we will leave that there uh the point of the story in general is to illustrate that uh that that good intentions or intentions in general may, may have outcomes that are divergent from the from the intention you think you're going to get a result um, but people are smart. They want to keep more of their money. They, they're going to do things that you're not expecting them to do. You think that you can limit one activity um, or promote another by imposing a tax or, or uh, levying a fine. And then you're going to have, you're going to cause these, you're going to alter these behaviors. I think that's one of the cruxes of, of Frisbee's book in general is that tax actually does alter the behavior of the society it 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 shapes it um and we can go back to the the carbon credit example that's a tax on carbon what's the government trying to do they're trying to alter the everyday behaviors of us by by uh, stifling or incentivizing or disincentivizing rather uh, the use of uh, products and services and industries that use a lot of carbon or output a lot of carbon I'm trying to think of a scenario where we would be um, not reluctant at all, motivated rather, to pay taxes. Reluctant or not motivated? Not reluctant at all. And in, in like, and motivated instead of being, what's the opposite of reluctant? Uh, in the sense that... Enthusiastic, I suppose. Enthusiastic, <laughs> yeah, okay, sure. Enthusiastic. Because what I'm wondering is, uh, you just said that the higher the taxes, the more people will find ways to avoid it. And let's talk about the Norwegian, Scandinavian countries yeah. for a second here, because they get taxed pretty high as well. And I 
do not know whether or not they're unhappy with it, but it is a socialist nation yep. and a lot of their costs are paid for by the government. So what is the general morale um, and overall emotion about paying those taxes to the government? So two things here. One, yes, there, there's they have socialist services, but to like lump a whole nation into the category of being socialist, I think is an error um, because it's, again, playing that black and white game. Right. Right. They are a very capitalist nation. They are socio-capitalist. They have, they pay a lot of taxes and those taxes go into funding um, social programs and social welfare programs like, like healthcare, like education. Um, like I'm pretty sure they get free education and free healthcare there. Uh, the roads are well-maintained. Um, infrastructure costs are covered. Infrastructure costs are covered, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, but they also have like a very thriving um, industrialist sector that that helps contribute a good chunk of the that that taxes as well. Like they're they're industrious. They they're high in. Uh, they have a lot of engineers, for example. They, they does Dominic Frisbee talk about this in the book, or does he sort of lump all nations under the under this um, uh, phrase of the higher the taxes, the more people are reluctant to pay? It? That's just more so like uh, a historical historical fact at, right. at this point like that or maybe it's a historical observation that is true in 90 percent of cases and like what's a high tax even yeah but i don't think that's true just for for taxes because if you are availing a service for someone for example and you realize that hey you would save uh 200 per year if you got this service from this other person then you would essentially in the name of saving money um, change the service that you are getting to to keep more of your money. So I don't think that it's necessarily taxes, but just human nature to want to keep more of what you've earned so you can use it wherever you want to. Yes, and that leads to people leaving countries, like talking about the service that you get from your government from paying taxes. Uh, like if you're not satisfied with the, uh, well, with your citizenship, you can you it's not easy for a lot of people to just up and move it's their country not, yeah. but that's essentially what what they would then be incentivized to go and do and well texas did that and florida is doing that right that? there's a, a huge migration of tech companies and i think startups in general from california to tech or from a lot of province or states in the united states of america to texas because of their lenient so to speak tax laws yeah. on startups same with delaware yeah same with the i'm pretty wyoming. sure florida as well wyoming wyoming's really uh, easy not easy i can say easy but they are open-minded about crypto which is why a lot of crypto companies are founding their headquarters there that's right yeah so is there a same analogy to be made for if there are more tax incentives or the lesser tax you have to pay the more you're going to incentivize people to spend yeah Absolutely. Hong Kong is a perfect example of that. Uh, its population uh, exploded after, forget in which year, but Dominic Frisbee, actually, he at the end of the book, he kind of bases um, or he devises or suggests or proposes a, uh, a utopian society, which is like, in my opinion, kind of always a dangerous thing to do to suggest that a utopian society is even possible. But he, uh, I think it's more so of like, a, like, let's imagine this and see what happens. But he bases a lot of that off of uh, on that model off of what Hong Kong did and does and where it came from, because Hong Kong's a success story, quite frankly, in 
in the historical tax record. Uh, like it was struggling to survive uh, after World War II and under British rule, like they appointed some guy, I forget what his name was, but he completely scrapped the tax code and basically started from scratch. Uh, and it was low tax and very little tax uh, because there's, there's a big difference. <laughs> uh, like those two things are distinct. And what ended up happening was a huge population boom. A lot of businesses migrated there because there was low corporate tax. Uh, the quality of life uh, of um, of Hong Kongians, um, Hong Kongese, yeah, that's that's the right one, Hong Kongese, um, increased by by all of these factors. And um, so we we actually see that, and they actually increased like they were trying to solve a particular problem. How do we collect more taxes? Uh, while incentivizing people to come here because they didn't have a big tax base, right? They didn't have a lot of people in Hong Kong that were wealthy enough to even pay the tax. So counterintuitively, they've reduced the number of taxes and reduced taxes. And that incentivized more people to come. And since taxes were low and quote-unquote fair, then people were happy to pay the tax. Uh, see, it's, it's, it's not that people aren't willing to pay the tax. I, I'd like... For me, I'm 100% willing to pay my tax. It's just when I when the uh, when I when the things that are promised to me that my taxes are said to be paying for, and I don't see that in front of me, and I, I don't, it's divergent. Do you know what I mean? Like if I can't see right in front of me that my tax dollars are going to actually provide me with the standard of living and the quality of life and the social services that are supposedly being said that they're that's where my tax dollars are going. That's when I feel uncomfortable with, with paying tax. Um, anyway, sorry. Counterintuitively, uh, Hong Kong reduced taxes in the amount the amount of taxes and the number of actual tax laws. And they ended up collecting more tax year after year for some crazy number of years in a row. Um, and that's because people stopped trying to avoid their tax. And people kept more of their money, which allowed them to reinvest in their own businesses and in the in their communities. The dollars uh, or Hong Kong dollars stayed local longer and long enough to build infrastructure extremely rapidly, which led to record levels of taxes being collected by the Hong Kong government year after year after year after year. It was so successful that China adopted like they're a communist nation, right? But again, it's not black and white. They're a capitalist communist nation now. They have a huge business infrastructure. And yes, someone from the Chinese Communist Party is necessarily a, an employee of every business in China. Um, but they, they do, they're a very industrious nation now and that they're tightly integrated with capitalistic principles, um, which is one of the reasons why I think they've been so successful. So... Yes. Dominic Trisby <laughs> talked about Hong Kong. Yes, he yes he did. What what other nations did he compare? Uh because talk you talked about the the UK with yeah. um, daylight robbery or the, the hearth tax, but that was say three hundred, four hundred years ago. Yeah. And Hong Kong, that was post World War Two. Yes. So does he put into perspective twenty twenty one, twenty twenty two, like the twenty twenty first century? Yeah, he does. He talks a lot about how there's a booming and growing nomadic population, right? There's this tax rule um, in some nations. Wait, hang on. Yeah, booming ahead. nomadic 
yeah. population. That's right. So nomad means uh, one like individual who moves around. Around countries or around in the country? Both. Um, but I think in the context of Dominic Frisbee's book, it's from country to country. Um, With the, but okay, hang on. I just yeah. want to get this clear because are you talking about remote work or are you talking about people immigrating from one country to another and making the next country or the immigrated country their home base? I'm talking about someone who doesn't necessarily have a permanent domicile in any country. So they may be Canadian. Right on. Okay. But so, they don't spend much time in Canada. So like digital nomads, for example. Digital nomads. So if we were to continue traveling for the next five years, we would, or well, we have kind of been for the past three or four months. But yeah. So if we continue traveling, we'd get that status. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And plus all of our work is remote anyway. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So that's, that's the digital nomads. That's the nomadic booming population Dominic Frisbee was referring to when he said what? Uh, when he w said that it's going to become increasingly difficult to tax for governments to tax anything with um, with these digital nomad population, which uh, by 2030 he says will make up uh, approximately um, anywhere from an eighth to a quarter of the population, one to two billion people. Does he say anything about the gig economy? The gig economy? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Is yeah. that part of the? Or I guess it would be a different category, but how does one tax people working? For air, like for as part as host for Airbnb and Uber drivers and yeah exactly how how is that taxed yeah and uh, so he gives an example he says you're Canadian and you work in the UK for two months and you do a job for someone in Singapore then you move to Mexico where they actually physically like have paid you by the time you get to Mexico uh, who collect which government collects the tax what amount of tax do you pay um, how is that tax enfor enforced. Um, like, let's just say this Canadian does not have any physical property or bank account, right? Let's say that they actually get paid in Bitcoin. <laughs> like, how is that tax collected and enforced? And which government has a claim on that? And which department is even going to like be declared the department that that figures that out? Right. At what, how much is the cost of figuring out how much that person pays? Right. Is it more than 50 cents for every dollar? <laughs> because at that point, it's not worth it for the government to collect it. Any government. So what did he say? So he said that, that this is going to be an increasingly large problem and CBDCs will likely help with uh, collecting. Oh, he mentioned sound bank currencies? He, I don't think the word CBDC came out yet because uh, the book was written in 2018, I do believe. Did he say uh, anything about Bitcoin? Oh, yeah. Did he say anything about cryptocurrencies? Yeah, he interviewed Roger Ver in... Uh, Bitcoin Jesus. Bitcoin Jesus from Bitcoin Cash. Um, and, like, I actually, I, I respect Roger Ver for, like, the entrepreneur in person that he is. Actually, he says a lot of really cool and insightful things. The one area we diverge on is he thinks Bitcoin Cash is the real Bitcoin. Uh, but... Uh, Which makes sense from his point which, of view. Exactly, because totally. the Bitcoin white paper does say it's peer-to-peer, -peer, it is a peer-to-peer -peer electronic cash system. And nor does it say it should be used as a hedge against inflation but that just sort of the direction that bitcoin is headed because exactly. of the social investment that people have made in it yeah yeah and he talks about he, he infers that nfts are a thing he infers the digital hyperspace and the metaverse and all of that stuff is coming but george over or dominic frisbee dominic frisbee okay, okay. and he was just like two, uh, two or three years early to that to like actually put a name on these things but he talks all about it right um, so what does he say well, just that it's like more and more of our economies are not based on physical materials, um, right? Remember huh. earlier we were talking about um, 
like uh, the most fundamental units of value are materials from the earth and human labor. Uh, but what happens when like <laughs> we're using less and less actual materials from the earth and more and more digital digital materials essentially and like can you give me an example an nft digital land but for the store of value right because you can't farm in decentraland and you can't harvest food that well you can't okay sure sure you can farm in decentraland but you can't eat the food that that you harvest unless you're I, i yeah i don't even i can't even imagine what you'd have to become as a human to be able to eat that digital virtual food <laughs> right and have it provide you with nutrients and whatnot yeah. no i mean what what i mean by farm is like maybe you have corn tokens right and maybe you can go sell those corn tokens for bitcoin and then turn that bitcoin into canadian dollars so and you go, farm corn and then change that trade that for bitcoin right because those corn tokens might be like an in-demand token for for usage in a game somewhere right you need four corn tokens and eight turnip tokens. And like you can combine them into this unique NFT, yada, yada, yada. Right? So Dominic Frisbee is essentially saying that you're putting, you're producing a productive output in this digital world that you're getting money for in exchange. And how do you, how can they claim a part of that money? Exactly. They'd that, probably just tax the internet usage. <laughs> I mean, they could. They could. At that, the base layer. He suggests that. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, just like a general internet tax. Yeah. Right, like we pay for the tax, like the services that our um, internet providers, our ISPs actually give us. Um, but maybe there'll be like a filtering of our internet usage and we'll be taxed on like the sections or portions of that the internet that we use. Sounds very similar to net neutrality. Um, yes, I remember it does. talking about it in one of our episodes a long time ago. And I remember that India was going to pass a net neutrality law. Um, not exactly sure what it was but all what they wanted to do is essentially monitor what every single citizen was spending time on so that accordingly they could i don't think tax was in the picture but they could do something with that information or um or censor how much time one spends wherever they want to um but it never really came through yeah and like elevate one um but I still company think, over another yeah yeah but still if you don't if you haven't protect if you ha i mean if you haven't protected yourself from the kind of information that you access over the internet by uh, securing your uh, modem or like using a VPN, or if your uh, your internet provider is able to see your traffic, they sell that data to advertising companies, which then come back to you and advertise you things that you've been looking for. That's just you know one of the ways. Of course, there's all sorts of other variables that also come into play, but that's not necessarily net neutrality, but that you know. The government could just say to all internet providers that, hey, you have to tell me what, where your, where your users are uh, navigating to. And I want a database of all of this so that we can come up with some sort of solution to tax individuals that are not spending time making something productive with earth materials. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And we are absolutely heading head that, in that direction. Huh. All right, then. <laughs> no mining asteroids yet? Uh, no, no, that wasn't talked about. So um, what did he say about Bitcoin though? What was his opinion on Bitcoin? Um, that's, that's a good question. I don't remember explicitly just that more, uh, more things are being digitized and like that's an added fence or, um, I guess, yeah, fence in hyperspace between you and the tax man, um, uh, tax authority. <laughs> um, 
yeah, he's like, okay, he said that, again, going back to how much, how much does it cost to collect the tax? The government has an incentive to reduce the cost as low as possible. That's why we have uh, income tax. Like in a lot of ways, the tax system all around the world right now is the most efficient tax system that we've ever had. Because if you own a corporation in many developed company, countries, it's, on, it's your responsibility, your legal responsibility to collect the tax, report the tax, and remit the tax, meaning send the tax to the tax authority. The government has, doesn't have to do anything. Essentially, the cost of um, administrating all of that is put on the business. Right. Right. So now that's a that's a business expense at that point to administrate the the collecting and remitting of taxes. We actually see that cost reflected in our prices. So when taxes go up and when more taxes are implemented, uh, the cost of our goods and services also increase because of that fact, because the taxes are actually collected and remitted by the business. And so that's an interesting thing. Now, the more taxes that can be deducted at source, um, the more efficient the whole tax schema becomes. You mean like sales tax? Uh, yes, I do mean like sales tax, but like sort of, because that like is then put in the, the, um, the account of the business and the business has responsibility, responsibility to remit that later. So what do you mean for that tax at source? So imagine that instead of having a bank account, you have a central, a central bank account. Uh, like a bank account, not with, uh, in Canada, the RBC, not with a, a bank that doesn't have the power to print money, right? Not the cent- The central bank has the sole database that says where the money is, essentially, right? Imagine having one money account what, with what, them. Hang on, yeah. what do you mean by the central bank has a sole database on where the money is? Uh, well, like someone has to keep a record of where the money is. Wh- where whose money is? Where a nation's money is. Okay. But do do banks have to report to the central bank on where people's money is? Yeah, effectively. Yeah. Mm, okay. I don't know about that. I think that we probably have to have some research and numbers and some data to to back that. But well, that, that's that's what a, what a clearinghouse is, right? Like uh, these banks build up a a log of transactions, let's say, for one or two weeks or two or three days. And then they figure out the differences between like which bank owes who what. So the central bank might not know how much money each individual person has, um, but they know how much all of the main financial entities have. Okay. Yeah. That makes sense. And then the banks keep their own databases and then the financial institutions and money service businesses beneath them keep their own databases got and it, got so it. on and so forth. Okay. Um, but in the future, when there's a central bank digital currency driving the entire money system... Uh, you're going to have all of your like a sales tax if that money's coming out of your your central bank digital currency account and into the account of the business the business no longer has needs to collect that sales tax that sales tax can go straight and directly into the hands of the central bank slash the government at that point right um so maybe we will see costs of goods and services decrease at this point because businesses are no longer carrying the cost of collecting and remitting that tax. Um, but this, in my opinion, has the potential to get very out of control. Very quickly on a larger time scale. Yeah, because like, let's just take this Quebec example, for uh, for example. Like, Regardless of which side of the debate you fall on, it's a contentious issue whether or not you think people should have the choice to get vaccinated. Now, if the government has the ability to withdraw money from your account, 
and detect whether or not you have been vaccinated, then they don't need your permission to take your money at that point. They can just do it. They can just censor your actions until you do as they say. And they can modify your behaviors, right? Because we, as we, you know, demonstrated or um, discussed earlier, taxes modify behaviors. Uh, you can be modified, have your have your money modify you into compliance. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Essentially. Essentially. So well, I, I still don't get what you ta- what you said about um, deducting taxes as source. You're essentially saying that if your money is programmable, then depending on what you're paying for or what you're getting paid for, you don't even have to um, account for your expenses or your income statements or your sources of income, essentially, and have the sort of accounting that we do at the end of your business year or at the end of your personal year. Yeah. Are you saying that all of that would simply be go away or not be required at all since taxes would be deducted at each and every um source of of getting rid of your money or disposing off of your money yeah every taxable transaction and i want to just expand i said deducted at source but let's expand that a little bit to say deducted and remitted at source so instead of just being deducted because sales tax is a deduction at source essentially but it's not a remittance at source so a deduction and remittance, those two together has the, the potential to radically increase the efficiency of our tax collection system. I'm not sure if that, that would even be possible, though, like deducting and remitting at source, because doesn't the remittance calculation depend on your expenses for an entire year or um, on, on a larger amount and larger number of actions? Yeah, I, I think so. So like you're essentially asking... Um, like at the end of the year, if the government owes me money, then how does that work if we're always remitting exactly a, a, at source? How's and that calculation possible? I, I still think that that it would be a rolling calculation. There's there's some nuances about how just time works, right? Like if I have a big expense at the end of the year that decreases my tax bill, um, then yeah, on January first or the first day of the tax year, the government might owe me some money, and at that point, they can just throw it back into my account. Um, but I think. The, the whole argument still still stands, stands true. For deducting at source. Deducting and remitting at source, yeah. Yeah. I really wonder how that'll work because we'd have to take into consideration so many behaviors of people um, and their expenditures that we're not aware of. So maybe starting with a business expense or a, like a business um, having to go through that experiment versus personal expenses or personal expenditure, uh, personal incomes because... That would probably be pretty hard for people to account for the money that they're not going to have every single day because it goes to the government instead. True. Also, how would cash economies work? Because cash, I, I, you know, after traveling in El Salvador and also traveling in... In India. <laughs> it, well, in India, but also in the UK, not in London because they had contactless everywhere, at least in London. But when we went to the more of the... Um, when we went to Northern Ireland, for example, yeah. right? He the the driver he didn't take he didn't take card. He needed cash. The bus driver, oh, so we yeah. had to go and right. go to the ATM and withdraw cash. It was right as we landed at Belfast Airport, and we needed to go into Belfast, or is it Belfast or whatever the yeah. airport there in Northern Ireland? And you know, to go into the city, we needed to get on a bus, but the driver didn't didn't accept card you just didn't have a card reader machine so we needed to go to the atm so you know and this is the uk we're talking about we're, we're talking about uh, a fairly progress uh, developed country it's yeah. not a developing country and they in some cases still use cash so how would that that would have to work 
um, where we never have to worry about having internet problems um, or like having your card not working and you never having to rely on cash, which right now I have to say, I find it really hard to, to like see this kind of society come into place. Yeah. I don't, I don't see it. it it's going to be a, like a 30 year thing, right? It's going to play out very quickly in city centers and very slowly in rural areas. But we also have the, the evidence that like rural areas are decreasing in size because the jobs and the employment and the resources are all in city centers. Uh, so like rural areas are not expanding right now. <laughs> like farmland is going downwards. Uh, people are migrating to cities because that's, that's where it's all happening. Um, so the more that happens, like the, the biggest percentage of our society will be on a CBDC within the next 10 years. Yeah, depends on which country you're talking about again, because sure, yeah. like we were in El Salvador thinking that we were going to make most of our transactions in Bitcoin, which we didn't. Right. <laughs> so, so I really wonder how uh, the rollout of cash is going to take place in, okay. a, yeah. and, and in just, that sort of setup. Just taking this back to Bitcoin, uh, like the thing that uh, Dominic Frisbee said more generally about all cryptocurrencies is like you can't remit at source. If you're paying in Bitcoin, if you're, if you can't, you cannot, you cannot do it. <laughs> what, what do you mean? Can uh, you expand on that? What do you mean by you cannot remit at source? Well, you, you can't force me to, to remove money from my account, from my Bitcoin wallet. Oh, okay, cool. Right? So he wasn't suggesting at source remittances as a, a, like as a solution for people. He was like saying that this could be the the case for governments. Yeah, I, I mean, he also made the case that it's convenient for businesses because they no longer have that that need to do that service on behalf of the of of the country on behalf of the nation. Yeah, that depends on the size of the the business, but go on. Yeah, I mean, he essentially made the case that as, uh, and I, I agree with him. Like he kind of predicts that as um, as it gets easier to collect taxes make new taxes and collect taxes as that becomes easier to do it's a it's a power right it's a very tempting power that uh, that can be exploited <laughs> that can be exploited or taken out of control now the more out of control it gets if it gets out of control um i would say that that proportionately increases the demand for something that resists the ability uh res res that is able to resist um, being withdrawn from involuntarily, something like Bitcoin, something like any other cryptocurrency for that matter. Talking are you talking about a possibility of a second Bitcoin? No, 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 Network? no. <laughs> I'm just saying that, uh, like the the more author authoritarian, I suppose, um, the uh, the tax system becomes, uh, the more exploitative it becomes, the bigger the the value proposition there is for something that helps you avoid those situations. Okay. Yeah. Right on. What was the highlight of the book? Goodness. Uh, that's, I'm not sure. I think that we talked a lot about, uh, well, okay. Here's an interesting thing. Um, in the American Civil War, like we are all taught about Abraham Lincoln and how the North against the South was the battle against, that like the North is this moral, righteous um player that is against the the like the racist and immoral south um and dominic frisbee does a, a like a pretty in-depth analysis of the literature um 
of the of surrounding the American Civil War, um, which apparently there's more literature around the American Civil War than any other war. Apparently, this is a claim that he made. Um, now, he he actually like discovers or brings to light or makes the point that the American Civil War had a lot more to do with tax than it did with slavery. Um, so this is another example that like the history is written by the victors or written, uh, by the winners. Um, and in this case, it was written <laughs> that like Abraham Lincoln was this like rah, 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 righteous guy who was like super ethical and, and like totally fighting to free the slaves. But on um, he's got direct quotes from Abraham Lincoln in Congress saying, like, I don't care about freeing the slaves. This is not about the slaves. This is about the money. This is about the taxes. Um, like he's got one quote that I found kind of fascinating. He's like, if I could win the war and and uh, have all slaves remain slaves, I would. If I could win the war and have all slaves um, be free, I would. If I could win the war and have half the slaves be free and half the slaves still be slaves, I would. Which just illustrates his impartiality. It doesn't illustrate that Abraham Lincoln's a racist or not. It just illustrates that that's not where his priorities were. His priority, because the South actually accounted for something like 90% of the total GDP of all of America at that point. But the money was collected by a central government, Washington, and then redistributed to the north of America. Um, basically, the... You mean the north of the states? The not... north of the states, exactly. Okay. Not North America, the north of America, the northern states. Um, and so the south was like, hey, that's not fair. You're taking all of our money and we're not getting it back. In, we're not receiving the social services <laughs> that we're supposedly paying into. Um, and so that's what spawned the revolt and the revolt and the like the south actually wanted to peacefully secede from the north apparently and the, <laughs> i say apparently but i'm just like reciting what i what i learned in the book and what i read um abraham lincoln then baited them into attacking first and throwing the first punch which gave him justification to go to war um and then win the battle they knew that that if they could get into battle with the south that they'd win but the trick was who's they the north the north the, if the north got into battle with the south the north would win yes they knew that but they needed to who's they the north the knew north that. abraham okay. lincoln knew that um, abraham lincoln was partial to the north he was, well, yeah, like the North is considered to be like... Why did he want them to win if he was collecting taxes mostly from the South? Because if the North wins, they get to conquer the South and like okay. re reintegrate the South into the whole of America. Okay, what happened next? Um, yeah, they baited the South. The South threw the first punch. It was about remaining in like um, good, I suppose, in the public eye. Do you know what I mean? Like if the South threw the first punch, then they're the aggressor right? Oh, we're just defending ourselves. We have to go to war now, right? That was kind of the narrative. Um, and then later on, they made it, you know, about the slaves. Uh, but uh, I've, I found it very interesting that, uh, like, Dominic Frisbee chose to to highlight the tax implications, that the, the war was actually much more about the money and where the money was flowing, rather than any social issue uh, regarding slavery that was going on at the time. So there you go. Seems like war has been either about money or power. War. Or resources, which can be which can be money and power. Yeah, yeah interesting. Exactly. So wh why was that the highlight though? Because I okay, so I grew up in India. I didn't really learn about the American Civil War. Right. What did you learn about the American Civil War in Canada? 
uh, I learned that the the South wanted to keep slavery and the North wanted to get rid of slavery because the North was full of people that thought slavery was bad, which might be the case, which probably was the case, actually, because... Uh, like Again, it's very multifaceted. It multifaceted. can't be black or white. Right. We can't, And we also can't attribute the whims of the government to the entire population of of uh of the north of of america um like canada and the northern united states uh like some states individually abolished slavery before the war had even taken place and canada has always been so and like harriet tubman when she freed slaves from the south she took them up north that's kind of what i learned um so like yes the north was like i would say the north the people of the north were against slavery abraham lincoln was a president who was concerned with collecting taxes. <laughs> that And like, it's just, uh, like, I think that people are truly concerned about the social well-being and welfare of the nation that they live in. But maybe this is a highlight for me because it illustrates that the people that are actually running the establishment, they have to be concerned with taxes. It's like I was actually just going to say that. No, I was actually just going to say that because if he wasn't concerned about the taxes, then how else would he be able to implement anything that he said he would or a government promised it would to its people? You need money for that. You can't do that on social credit. Right. Um, it looks really bad if, if the, pres- the sitting president loses... Uh, half of the United States and lets it secede, right? Like that would be a, a big blot on Abraham Lincoln's reign as a president, right? I, I for, Well, for me, more than looking bad, I'd be concerned about what I was going to do next. Because if I did, if I couldn't do the job that I was given, then what am I doing here? Exactly. Yeah. Interesting. So I'm, I'm, I'm not trying to paint Abe Lincoln in a bad light. I'm actually just trying to clarify the historic what like what actually happened historically based on what you read based on what i read yes right okay right on would you recommend everybody to read uh dominic frisbee's book i would what about what if you had to recommend uh an order you know reading the book versus or first versus listening to the podcast series first well i think that you'll actually get a lot of the same information out of the podcast series (laughs) as you did in this episode but i I do that they go in much more in depth they talk a lot about gold and the role of gold which we didn't even touch in the uh in this episode at all but like that's more so the uh the 20th century right like 1900s to 1971 and onwards um that's a whole other bag of worms that is so worth unpacking that you'll get out of both the book and the podcast series with robert breedlove Okay. Okay. Right on. Yeah. There you go. Uh, any party thoughts here, Murga? <laughs> no, no. But, well, this is something that I want to record in the introduction after I'm done, but I'll just say it here as well. Um, one of the episodes that was requested by one of our, one of you was um, us talking about how Keegan and I as a couple have uh, live a crypto-ish, I mean, like, We've gone full crypto or we've decided about the money of um, of our money and decided to ter- convert it into Bitcoin. So uh, I want to know what kind of questions everybody else has on this because we'd love to cover it. Um, I think that, Keegan, for you and I, things worked, worked out really conveniently with respect to our thoughts being aligned and where we wanted our yeah. money to be. Sure. But I, I have heard from a lot of our friends or just even online that spouses sometimes disagree on where a majority of the money should be or even what to invest in or what to spend time on, et cetera, et cetera. Or which partner does 
does the handling of the money like I'd yeah and if there's an equal sort of ownership um not ownership in the sense of uh owner, well i guess i don't know ownership of investments maybe even in some families ownership but of decision making yeah for sure. yeah, yeah yeah and uh we we have a system that works for us and we can talk about it so that you can copy listen it. to it or, or copy it if you want or take notes or whatever but if you have questions on that, send them over to us so that we know what to cover because this is just our life. It, it, it's going to be odd to not have something to go off of. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, yes, send us your questions either on Twitter or Instagram or uh, just email it to us at VayetGoFoCrypto and we can cover that on one of our next episodes. Um, and that's that. So there, there you have it. Uh, happy new year to everyone listening we are in india so if you want to see us and you're in india we're in maharashtra specifically let us know that too and if you enjoyed this episode then recommend it to a friend that's all all right stay tuned folks see you later